0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 400. Yay! With Shane Parrish. Shane is talking about decision making, so you'll learn one why we often fail to improve at decision making, two, some useful mental models that will serve you well, and three, the role of emotions in decision making. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that on over at awesome at your slash F four zero zero. Now here's Shane's story. Shane Parrish invests in wonderful companies, and he's also the mastermind behind the Farnham street blog and the knowledge project podcast. The Farnham Street blog is devoted to helping people develop an understanding of how the world really works, make better decisions, and live a better life. It focuses on sharing the principles that help others become better versions of themselves and to live consciously. So thanks to Shane for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Shane. Shane, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Glad to be here. Well, I think there's so much cool stuff that we could dig into together. And so I'm going to maybe just start. Maybe this is a a quick and easy question because the answer might be no comment. But are you at liberty to reveal anything cool you were working on for Canada's communications security establishment with the cyber defense initiative thingies?
2: Wouldn't it be so awesome if I was allowed to say, like, what I actually did or the impact that we had? But uh, no, unfortunately, I can't. uh, I'm not at liberty to say that because I don't want to end up in jail. Fair enough. (laughs) I think that's just the reality of the situation. Or we could pretend. Like, I could do a nice segue and then i just stop talking and you'd be like, oh, we had to cut that out for... The safety of the listener. We didn't want to put you in jeopardy.
1: That's good. So I'm just going to assume, for your street cred and for my own fun imagination, that it was like game changing life-saving, intense, uh, hacker excitement movie stuff.
2: Hey, man, I cannot confirm or deny any <laughs> any excitement that happens inside the government.
1: <laughs> well, maybe one that's uh, more uh, acceptable for public consumption is, let's hear a little bit about your enthusiasm for, for Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's partner there, and uh, the story behind the name of your blog, Farnham Street.
2: Yeah, so... I went back and did my MBA in, I think it was 2008 now. And I realized that we were learning just from the textbook. And so this is how sort of Farnham Street started. Bear with me here for a second as we we go through this. And I'm doing, you know, sort of, I was sitting in strategy class, it was about three weeks in, we're doing this case study, some Eastern European airline and, you know, what the owner should do and what they shouldn't do. And I just thought, a, the audacity of us sitting in a classroom deciding what the owner should or shouldn't do. But it was very clear to me that they wanted an answer, and the answer corresponded to the chapter that we read in the textbook, and they didn't really want the outside thinking that was going on. And all these other groups got up and said, oh, become the low-cost provider, because that was the the strategy that we were reading about that week. And our group got up there and were like, you know, we didn't think we could actually become the low-cost provider because of X, Y, and Z, and the teacher, at the time, the professor, I guess, just said, you didn't, you didn't do the work. And our group leader, who wasn't me, uh, stood up and was like, we did the work. We just, you know, you can't put it on a PowerPoint and all of a sudden you magically become the low-cost provider. You actually have to think through, like, how do you become the low-cost provider? Are those reasonable options or are they not? And he started working through all this thing. And, uh, you know, it was this really interesting back and forth. And he ended up quitting, leaving the MBA program on the spot.
1: Is he a dot-com billionaire now? Just got to (laughs) know.
2: No, he was I mean, he was super successful to begin with. He went back to his running super successful business, but he quit on the spot in the middle of the argument with the professor. He's like, if this is... The education I'm getting, like, I might as well just go home. And he left and never came back. And you hear those stories and you're like, I actually know somebody who did that. But as he was leaving, he backed up his bags. He was waiting in the cafeteria for a taxi and ran into him. And I was like, you know what really struck me as odd? Like, none of that seemed foreign to me, but like, how did we take such a different approach to this problem than everybody else seemed to take? He mentioned Charlie Munger. And I had heard of Munger before, I think probably back in like 97 or 98 when I was in high school. But I hadn't really thought about it. I went back to my dorm room that night. Instead of doing my homework, I looked up this Charlie Munger and started reading all about him and Warren Buffett. And I was like, oh my God, this is way better, way more interesting than my textbook. And it seems real in a way that my textbook couldn't be because it wasn't trying to distill the world into like one simple thing. It was like, it's complex and you need to understand a whole bunch of basic concepts and let us work them together. And then you might have an idea or better understanding of how the world worked. That very night, I created a blog, which was called 68131.blogger.com. Catchy. The zip code for Berkshire Hathaway. There you go. Right, so 68131. The U.S. zip code for Berkshire Hathaway headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, on Farm Street. We don't own that domain anymore, but that was the original sort of incarnation of Farm Street. And the reason I used six eight one three one was because I didn't think anybody would type in five digits at the time. Like URLs were, you know, words or sayings or whatever, but nobody would type in this, and I didn't want to password protect it. And it was completely anonymous because here I am working for an intelligence agency, writing a blog that's sort of public. It would be even more weird if it was like private. Five numbers, five digits, and then started connecting what I was learning. So I started just keeping a list of the things that I was learning and the things that I was connecting. And I found I wasn't doing homework anymore. I was just doing this. And I was diving in uh, head over heels into Berkshire Hathaway, reading the annual letters. There's a saying in the sort of like that goes around the internet and people who are in the, the know with Buffett and Munger sort of, which is if you read the annual letters to Berkshire Hathaway, it's better than an MBA. And I think in my personal experience, you know, I learned a lot more reading those letters than I did sort of going through my MBA. I learned a lot more about business. I learned a lot more about psychology I Learned a lot more about ethics. And I thought it was a really, really sort of valuable way to spend my time. My grades didn't decline, interestingly, as I spent less time on school because the formula for what the teachers wanted was pretty clear.
1: Intriguing. That's a really cool story. And I think it's funny that you were initially trying to be kind of discreet (laughs) and and now you've blown up to have like a million page views a month. This is so weird, (laughs) right? So, so fast
2: forward, you know, five years and there's like people trying to figure out who's behind this anonymous blog. And we have, I don't know, not that many readers at the time. And I was like, oh my God, like this is becoming a thing like people. And if they uncover that, you know, it's me or something, it's going to look super weird. So I put my name on it in 2013 and I, I think that was the year where we changed the domain to fernamstreetblog.com. And now it's fs.blog. So it's super easy to type in because we realized that a lot of people over the world spell Fernum a lot differently. So it's just fs.blog now.
1: Yeah, that's smart.
2: Now we have like 200,000 sort of weekly uh, subscribers to our email. And I don't know how it happened because we didn't advertise anything at all. It's all been word of mouth.
1: That's cool. Well, well, you've got some really high quality stuff there. It's almost dangerous how engaging and interesting. And I want to be there for hours at a time.
2: <laughs> I appreciate it. We, we yeah. get a lot of emails going like, I just killed a weekend on your website.
1: <laughs> well, better there than Netflix, I guess. <laughs>
2: And it's like a rabbit hole, right? And it's like, oh, my God, why haven't I found you like 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, well, it's great stuff. So how would you, in short form, articulate, you know, what are you all about over there at Farnham Street and and the podcast, The Knowledge Project?
2: just using timeless knowledge to sort of like create better humans. Like how do we improve ourselves in a non self helpy sort of way? Like we want to make better decisions, but we also want to live a more meaningful life. Why do we have to be bound into one of those categories? How do we create a better version of ourselves every day? So what do we need to learn to think about problems differently? How do we need to reflect on our life to live a more meaningful, deliberate, and conscious life? And how do we develop better relationships with people, not only with others and our spouses and our family and our kids, but with ourselves like what are conversations with yourself look like how do we be more positive in the way that we talk to ourselves and how do we just sort of like how do you put that under one umbrella you can't really so we just call it fernum street
1: that's good i'm resonating and vibing totally with what you're saying timeless knowledge better version of yourself so we totally have a healthy overlap and we've had overlap of guests too Annie Duke, chris voss etc so i'm digging it i really want to dig deep into decision making because that is a shared passion area for us. And I think we can cover some goodies. So I'd love if we could maybe start broad and general then and, and get real precise and tactical. In your observation of the human condition, uh, where do you find that uh, most people most often end up uh, making mistakes when it comes to their decision making?
2: They're no consciously making mistakes, right? We just have this view of the world that we think is correct. And if other people disagree with us, well, they must be wrong because if they're right, then that means we're incorrect, right? So our ego sort of like kicks in at a subconscious level. It doesn't want us to be wrong. It wants to protect us because being wrong is labor intensive for your brain. You have to think through like why you were wrong, what you were wrong about. You have to update your views. All of that sounds like a lot of work. So your brain is like, eh, we really don't want to do that. So I think like, how do we get to that point is a really interesting micro or very interesting sort of way that we make incorrect decisions, right? And if you think about it, we, we start school very young, and we learn a wide variety of things from art and music and science and math to literature and humanities. And as we increasingly, as we get older, we narrow that, right? So high school becomes a little bit more focused and then university or college becomes a lot more focused. And then you get out in the workforce and it's increasingly narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. And usually when you're a junior person in an organization, you don't get to make too many decisions that are outside of your specialty. But you pass three or four years, you get a promotion or two, and all of a sudden you find yourself, maybe your are mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s, in whatever range that is, you're doing a job that you weren't really hired for that has less to do with your specialty than you ever sort of would have imagined when you were doing college or university. And you're required to make decisions, but you view the world through this lens of your specialty, right? Because that's all you've ever known life is busy. You have family, you have kids. It's really hard to develop sort of a multidisciplinary education yourself. And you don't even know that you're missing it. And so when you're thinking about problems, when you're seeing problems, you just frame it so narrowly. You think about it so myopically, right, through your one lens that you can't see the world through other people's views. And you're only using one lens. So you're not really getting a firm view of reality. You're getting a view of reality through your eyes, but not necessarily through a more accurate view of what's actually happening, which would require a whole bunch of different perspectives, right? I think that that's probably the leading cause of like how we sort of trick ourselves because we're only looking at it through our lens. We're not looking at it through a more holistic lens or if you want a toolbox of lenses where we can just pull them out, look at the problem this way and be like, oh, that applies, that doesn't apply. And then we start to see a lot better in terms of what's happening. And the other sort of like prime reason I think we make sort of suboptimal decisions is just timeline, right? We're ultimately, we're super busy, we're super stressed. There's a lot of anxiety in the world. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We sort of just want to solve something, right? We don't want to think about it again. We, We sort of want to turn off our brain. Our brain wants to optimize for energy conservation. We're full of stress. We're full of anxiety. The day is long. Got a lot of stuff to do. And then we find something that just solves the immediate problem we latch on to it. Oh, we can finally relax, right? Our brain is like, great, we solved the problem next. But we don't think through, like, what other problems did that create? What's that going to look like in 10 months, 10 weeks, 10 years? What other problems is that going to create? And we know that when we're inside an organization, because that's when somebody's ramming a solution down your throat. It's going to solve the immediate problem, but create a host of other problems, right? Uh, and sometimes those problems are less than the problem we're solving, but often the problems that that comes with are even more. Uh, And then you think about how the stories that we get promoted in organizations, like the stories that we tell not only ourselves, but we tell others. It's like, oh, I solved this problem. But you never talk about the problems that you avoided. You never talk about the problems that you created when you solve that problem. And so I think it's just a very narrow sort of view of like, how we view ourselves and how we protect ourselves and sort of like the timelines that we use when we make decisions.
1: That's just a powerful question right there that I haven't really chewed on much, which is, okay, how does this solution Creating other problems. And am I okay with that? Are those, are those better problems that I'm thinking when you talk about the short term solutions, it's so funny. Recently I've found myself like, I just have like a messy desk or a drawer or surface. I'm just like, I'm tired of this mess. And so I put a lot of the things in trash or in storage containers elsewhere that I just put them elsewhere. And it's just like, am I really better off? <laughs> like another day will come where I need that thing and I'm going to have to go and dig it out.
2: Yeah. Although alternatively, if you don't use it for the next year, you you know, you can probably get rid of it.
1: Totally. Yeah.
2: But often that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're solving, We we call this second order thinking, which is sort of like you're solving the first problem, but you're creating a host of other problems at the second, third or fourth layer. And I think you just want to start thinking at a, a deeper level where you can sort of see if, if I do this. And there's a, an ecologist called Garrett Hardin, who, interestingly enough, was his research was sponsored by Charlie Munger. He wrote a book called Filters Against Folly. And one of the things that he mentioned in that is the three laws of ecology was just to ask yourself, and then what? Like, you can never do merely one thing. You just remember that. Like, you can't do anything in and of itself there's always a consequence or a, a repercussion or an impact or however you want to think of a, that terminology and he used to ask himself and then what right so if you're in a meeting and you're thinking that is the only question that you need to think about to to change your time scales a little bit right it's three words it's super powerful and it has the ability to change the conversation in the room
1: i love that question and i've heard it more so in the context of avoiding temptations it's like, oh my gosh, I want to eat that whole tub of ice cream. And then what? It's like, yeah, you're right, I'll feel terrible and be fat. <laughs> I've never I'm not gonna do that. So problem avoided proactively ice cream though it's so good so <laughs> tempting <laughs> well and i'd love it if maybe you could sort of make this all the more real if you could share maybe an instance or a favorite example you have in terms of oh hey we solved a problem and then we created some bigger problems like do you have sort of a, a poster child example of this
2: well here's a business example that may seem a little bit esoteric but everybody might resonate with we used to have pop-up box on the website and so we used to have pop-up box for everybody who showed up And it would show up every time you showed up. And the first order consequence of that is we had a ton more email subscribers to Farnham Street. We were getting exactly, like first order, we are getting the metrics we wanted, we were adding like 4,000 people a a day or something, and it was crazy. The second order consequence of that is like, it drove up our costs, because we pay per person on the email list. And then we started looking at the numbers, and the open rate, the click-through rate, the engagement of those people was way lower quality than if we added a little bit of friction to sign up for our email list. Maximizing for one variable, create a host of other problems, we have a problem where we we have low reader engagement. We're having that because we didn't think through sort of like the second order consequence. Or an example that probably resonates more with people is like, I'm hungry. Well, eat a chocolate bar, right? But if I eat a chocolate bar over and over again, every time I'm hungry, I'm going to end up fat, out of shape. It's going to have a whole bunch of health consequences. It's going to have relationship consequences. It's going to have consequences about how I talk to myself. And that's just ways that we can sort of think through, right? and then what?
1: Okay, cool. And I want to hit now the the multidisciplinary, multiple lens view of things. I imagine there are an infinite potential number of ways you might segment the types or names of lenses out there. But I'd love it if you could maybe give us perhaps just a few uh, different or or contrasting or varied lenses that are very unlike each other and very useful when you start looking through things through each of these lenses successively.
2: Right. So we call lenses, I mean, the terminology that we sort of use on the website is mental models. And they're sort of how we think and how we understand the world. They shape what we think is relevant in a given situation and what we think is irrelevant, right? So we're using them all the time. Whether we're conscious about them or not is a different story, right? But these mental models or lenses are how you simplify complexity. And mental models are really, or the lens, is just a representation of how something works or how something looks through somebody else's eyes. And you can think of this, if you want to think about a lens we can think of the psychological term perspective taking. So if you're sitting in a meeting and there's five people around the table and they're all from different parts of the organization, one way to look at the problem through a different lens is to mentally take the perspective of each person in that room and sit in their seat. What does the problem look like from their perspective? What do they care about? What are they optimizing for? And that gives you a different lens, right? That's a very powerful lens, if you think about it. And it doesn't come from any sort of like discipline. It's just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Some of the ideas that we use as mental models or lenses into seeing the problem or thinking better, right? So there's different ways to see the problem and then there's different ways to think through the problem or think about the problem or how you see the problem. The map is not the territory is a great example of a lens that we can use that'll add clarity to a situation or insight to a situation. The map is not the territory. A map is not reality. Even the best map that we have, even the most detailed map that you can sort of find, it's imperfect, right? It's a reduction of something else. If it were to represent with sort of like perfect fidelity what it was the train to represent it wouldn't be a reduction right and it wouldn't be useful we need to reduce these things to keep them in our head and they can also be sort of like snapshots or points in time so they don't tell the whole story they could tell us something that existed before but doesn't necessarily exist today and if you think in a business context you can think of an income statement as a map a balance sheet as a map a strategic plan as a map right it's useful and it helps us but it doesn't necessarily tell us what's really going on do people believe in this strategic plan? Well, that's part of the terrain. Are all parts of the organization working towards it in harmony and lockstep? Well, that's part of the terrain too. But if we just look at the map, we don't see that.
1: I'd love some additional examples of, of maps there. that was the first thing that came to mind for me was financial statements. What are some other maps that are sort of simplifications or, or representations of, of territory that we look at often?
2: Well, think of dashboards, right? How a lot of people run organizations. They run on this sort of like green, yellow, red dashboard. And that becomes a map, right? If everything's green, you think everything is okay, but it doesn't actually tell you how people are feeling. It doesn't tell you sort of like how engaged people are. It doesn't tell you if you're working towards the right goals. It just tells you that here's what the map looks like. It doesn't tell you if the environment's changed. And I think once you start to see things through a map territory problem, it becomes really really interesting to think about. We're reducing things to deal with them in our head, but it doesn't tell us what's really going on. Email's another example. You might have 32, which is what I have right now in my inbox, 32 emails.
1: Not bad. Like,
2: oh my God, that's not bad at all. But it doesn't tell you what what those emails are actually about or how much work they are. If we assume that each email, we naturally have this map of what an email sort of takes or looks like, maybe it's five minutes to respond to. So you're like, oh, you could be done that in a day at most. But those 32 emails in my inbox are there because I've procrastinated on them, or they might take hours and hours to respond to, or they might be projects that have been ongoing that I owe something significant to. And so that number, that heuristic is just a map about how things are are, and how they look. And we instantly infer that map through our own lens. Another sort of example of a different type of mental model that we might think about from math is multiplying by zero. So you think, we we all learn this in, I don't know, grade three. Any reasonably educated person knows that if you multiply something by zero, no matter how large the number is, it goes to zero. But it's true in human systems too, right? If you think about trust you violate somebody's trust, you go to zero. If you think about a value proposition in a business, you can think about it as additive or multiplicative. So you go to a restaurant and you have really good food. That's really additive. If the food is terrible, though, it becomes multiplied by zero. Or you go to the bathroom and it's dirty, you're never going to go back. So there's certain things that can happen that you never want to happen if you're a business owner. There's certain propositions in your value chain that'll just cause people to never come back, and those are multiplied by zero. And if you think about it, it's a really interesting lens where you just go back to zero with that customer. If you think about the world today, people share that information with other people. So it's not even going to go back to zero. It's like they're going to tell other people. So it's, it's sort of like a really negative
1: thing. All right. I'm digging this. So we got uh, Multiply by Zero. The map is not the territory. Sure.
2: What, what about Chaos Dynamics, right? Which is another one that we sort of talk about on that the website, which is sensitivity to sort of initial conditions. So in our world, small changes in initial conditions can have massive sort of downstream effects. This is the proverbial sort of butterfly effect where a butterfly in Brazil flapping its wings can cause a hurricane somewhere else. We think about that as something that's like, oh, that's a great story, but we don't think of it in terms of how we live, which is how do we always have this baseline where we can accommodate multiple conditions? One of the ways that small changes to initial conditions can cause catastrophic loss or mortgage rates increasing if you're tight on the finances or you're overlevered on your house a small change in interest rates can cause you to go back to zero. And that's just an example of sort of like how we can think about that. But it's a way that people don't necessarily think about problems. These are lenses or tools that you put in your toolbox, and then you walk through a problem and you just sort of look at it through these lenses. And if you look at it through all of these lenses, it's sort of like layering tracing paper, one on top of each other. And each part has like a different part of the end image. But when you layer them all on top of each other, you can see the whole
1: thing. That is a cool picture. As you visualize this in your mind's eye, is there a particular picture that your layers of tracing paper are making?
2: Well, I was thinking actually like the way that I normally phrase it is it's walking around a problem in a three-dimensional way right? You have a situation or a problem or a challenge or a struggle. And to understand it, you sort of have to walk around it in a three-dimensional way. And another way to phrase that was tracing paper. So I sort of got lost in like this this whole, like, oh, I'm explaining this in a different way than I've normally explained
1: this before. Well, no, I really liked it. I was visualizing an image of pandas, for the record, if anyone cares.
2: Well, you can think of this elephant story, right? Where there, there's these seven blind men or a, I think it's seven, but they, they all each put their hand on a different part of the elephant. And they don't know it's an elephant. They just, oh, this is like a, a stool leg and this is whatever. And They don't actually put together that it's an elephant. What you want to be able to do is step out of that system and see the elephant. And that brings us to maybe the biggest sort of mental model of them all, which is Galilean relativity. You can think of it as Physics, we all learn this. I think at some point we've all learned this, right? If, if how fast are we moving right now? You'd probably say zero, right? Like I'm sitting in my chair at my desk. I'm not moving at all. Yeah. But we're moving at what, 20,000 miles an hour around the sun? Yeah. Right? You don't feel it. And the reason you don't feel it is because you are in this system and you only see yourself in this system that you're immediately around. The way that I learned it in physics, the way that I assume everybody learned this in physics, but maybe that's not the case, is you know, you're on a train with a ball and you're holding it and you're standing in the middle of the aisle in the train train's moving at 60 miles an hour. How fast is the ball moving? Well, relative to you, the ball's not moving at all. But Relative to somebody watching the train go by, it's moving at 60 miles an hour. And so how do we step outside of our system, almost like seeing yourself as an actor, how do we take ourselves out of the situation? And so that we can see the situation more accurately and
1: what it actually is. I actually like that notion of being an actor because I, I have found that if I actually really, I guess it's just perspective taking, if I, I step into the roles of different folks, like, okay, how would, you just fill in the blank, it doesn't matter, how would Beyonce, you know, how would, you know, my uncle, you know, how would my wife, you know, think about this, approach this, what would she be concerned about? Suddenly, like, new ideas come to light. Like, oh, that's brilliant. And just because I decided to to be someone else in my brain for a little bit.
2: Yeah. And I think, like, if you think about perspective taking, that's stepping inside of your system. If you think about how do you improve your relationships with anybody else, you just step outside of yourself and see the world through their eyes. It'll change the vocabulary. It'll change the questions you ask. It'll change what you want to talk about. It'll have an exponential impact on not only your relationship with other people but your problems will seemingly become a lot smaller you'll have more free time and you'll have less anxiety
1: i'm sold that's a good combo yes
2: and it's free (laughs) (laughs) wait i gotta bottle this stuff and sell it for like 10,000 bucks or something.
1: You've got a decision journal and a thinking cap, which I thought were pretty cool products to offer on your blog. I'd like to hear a little bit about the decision journal and and how one can go about improving their decision-making skills day after day in the course of living life.
2: Well, we all make a lot of decisions and those decisions have an impact over time, but we rarely sort of reflect in life. We rarely reflect on relationship decisions. We rarely sort of reflect on decisions we make at work to invest money, to not invest money, to do a product line, to not. And so we convince ourselves that we're right by not reflecting. We limit the learning capacity that we have. We limit the learning opportunity that we have in those situations. We have a thinking cap. We give it away to all of our learning community members for free. We just send them an email saying, hey, you want a free hat? Like, thank you for supporting us. But it's really symbolic. And it's symbolic of the approach that we want to take to not only living life, but to making better decisions and just being a really awesome person, which is how do we cue people to reflect more often? And I personally think the world would be a much better place if we reflect a little more. But reflection is really the key to learning. And when you think about how organizations sort of go through the process of learning from mistakes or how we go through learning from the mistakes of others, it's not normally about reflection. It's normally about like, give me your lessons learned and lessons learned aren't necessarily reflections They're the result of the lessons learned are the result of reflections. But we really want to know like what questions people are asking themselves. How are they learning to think better? Are they beginning to see their weaknesses? Do they make the same mistakes over and over? And what sort of feedback, this is where a decision journal comes in, what sort of feedback are they giving themselves? So a lot of people don't want to talk through their decisions at a really raw and vulnerable level with other people for a variety of reasons. And I get it. But you can do it with yourself. You don't need other people. And the way that you do it with yourself is you you have a decision journal. And if you Google decision journal, I think we're the number one sort of hit. Hey, we, we've we offered a template online. We've worked with special courses around the world and we're developing the second sort of version of our decision journal right now. So we created this sort of alpha product, if you will, if you want to think in software terms about like, what does a basic decision journal look like? Will people use it? How do they use it? Which is the most important feedback we can get. And now we're incorporating, we've had that out there for about 70 months and now we're incorporating the feedback and we're coming up with sort of like the next. Next version of a decision journal. But really, that's what it is, right? You're just thinking through problems at a different level and you're trying to give yourself clear, unambiguous feedback. And you don't want to be able to convince yourself that you were right when you were wrong. And I think that so often we trick ourselves later, or the data is not clear, or we think we should have done something we didn't do or we didn't do something that we should have done, but unless we wrote it down at the time, we don't remember what information we actually had, what information we considered relevant when we were making the decision. So how are we expected to get better when we know that our mind is gonna trick us, right? What are we predicting is going to happen? What decision are we making? What happened? I mean, that would be the very essence of the decision journal, but we wanna get a little more specific than that. What variables do you consider relevant in this situation? And then when you re-eval- when you evaluate your decision six months later and the privacy of sort of like protecting your ego, you can start to cue, oh man, you know what happened? I was right, but I was right for the wrong reasons. And that's a very powerful realization because it allows you to learn.
1: And, and I think one of the coolest things that uh, I dug about the Decision Journal and perusing it is the, the mental physical state checkboxes. I'm energized, I'm relaxed, I'm angry, I'm anxious. Can you talk a little bit about the role of your emotional Physical state and thinking and decision making. And is there an, an optimal state for different kinds of decisions? Or, or how do you think through that? Well,
2: just think about it. At, like, when's the last time you made a super amazing decision when you were angry?
1: at <laughs> I told him off and it was awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you feel good in the moment, but then you're like, oh my God, like, that's not me. That's not who I am. And that's the common sort of like, I don't want to say excuse. It's the wrong word, but that's the common reaction people have to when they do something, like they type up this nasty email and they send it and then they feel good for about 30 seconds. And then, you know, the next day they're like, that's not who I am. That's what I thought in that moment because I was so emotional. And when you're emotional, you don't think, clearly. I mean, that's part of being emotional is that you don't think clearly. And that doesn't mean emotions are bad. It just means that we have to account for emotions or time of day, right, that you're making decisions. So it tends to be the data that we've collected. I mean, unsurprisingly, you don't need like advanced AI from Google to tell this, but people make worse decisions when they're more emotional. Uh, but people also ma- tend to make better decisions more complicated sort of like analysis in the morning than in the afternoon right because your brain's tired in the afternoon again your brain is optimizing for laziness at all points in time and thinking is hard work thinking through a problem at a second or third level is hard work trying to predict which variables matter and how they interact is hard work Trying to pull out a mental toolbox of lenses and see the problem through other people's eyes or step out of the system that you're involved in so you can see yourself as an actor is hard work. And so you're more likely to make better decisions in the morning than you are in the afternoon. And that doesn't apply to everybody, but I think that's a fair generalization. When you're making a decision... If you're using a decision journal, it can just be a prompt that, hey, like, I'm really upset right now. And maybe I'm going to make this decision tomorrow instead of today. Or maybe I'm not going to send this email right now. I'm just going to sit on it until the next morning, which is usually good advice for emails after four that, uh, you know, can where you're worked up and you just have to type something because you need to get it off your chest. And it's fair to get it off your chest, but it's probably not indicative of who you are or who you want to be or who you are. And I think that we can become better versions of ourselves by sort of like tracking where we are emotionally and matching that to what we're doing, right? If we're in a bad mood, we probably don't want to be making business decisions about the direction of our company. We probably don't want to be sort of like making any rash, emotional relationship decisions. We want to like tone down. Maybe we're just deciding what to watch on Netflix or we're deciding what book to read or we're deciding, you know, we want to keep those decisions pretty minor and maybe closer to the best and in ourselves so we're not affecting other people.
1: I like the tip about the email and holding off for a bit. I'm reminded of historians have talked about Abraham Lincoln and his letters that he's sometimes he's like really mad at a general during the civil war and so he would be writing that up and then wait a moment or a day and say you know what I'm not going to send that it's pretty cool that historians found all these extra letters that had a lot of heat yeah in them and he's like you know what this one is going to be heated and it's going to go out and this one's going to be heated and it's it's never going to see a lot of day
2: Isn't that like an example of timeless wisdom Though, Yeah. What's changed is the technology or the availability and the reach. We could always do emotional things. We've been able to do that since we were probably like cavemen, right? But now, like instead of like one person or maybe our small tribe, we could reach a whole organization or the whole world on the internet by sending a tweet we don't want to send or sharing something on Facebook that won't look so good in the morning or saying something about somebody else that, you know, we might feel in the moment because we're blinded to the complexity of other people, but isn't really indicative of who they are and says more about us than anything. And I think it's reflecting on those, catching ourselves and then reflecting on that is how we sort of change behavior and become a better version of ourselves.
1: That's excellent. Well, Shane, tell me, is there anything else you'd like to share about decision-making or anything you think folks who want to be awesome at their job just really need to know before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I think it's just tough to get
2: advice from other people because what works for other people doesn't necessarily work for you. And what we're looking for, usually when we consume information, is we're looking for sort of like the silver bullet, the easy fix, the, if I only do these four things, I'm going to get a promotion. Or I would just encourage people to be cautious about that. Anything that's so easily acquired or so easily available it's probably not going to be a source of real or lasting wisdom. You're going to have to do some work. And the the work is sort of like taking ideas and digesting them in yourself. And how we do that is through reflection. And most people uh, have a hard time with that. And I think that setting aside time to think not only about you, but about the life that you're living and the life that you want to live and how you can bridge that gap or how you could be a better version of yourself or even just sort of rubbing your nose just a little bit in the mistakes you make, not to the point where you're telling yourself terrible things or your self-talk is negative, but to the point where you're acknowledging that you could have done better and that you will do better in the future and accurately diagnosing what it is that you did that you want to do differently next.
1: Lovely. Well, now could you share with us uh, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: My favorite quote comes to me from a friend of mine, Peter Kaufman, who sent me this quote a long time ago by Joseph Tussman, which is, I'm going to try to remember it here. What the pupil must learn, if he learns anything at all, is that the world will do most of the work for you, provided you cooperate with it by identifying how it really works and aligning yourself with those realities. And if we don't let the world teach us, it teaches us a lesson.
1: Well, you could chew on that for a while. Isn't that powerful? Yeah.
2: It's just like everything. And there's another really good one I got from Peter as well, which I think is super telling. And it was actually about Peyton Manning. But I mean, it doesn't matter who it's about. It was most geniuses, especially those who lead others, prosper, not by deconstructing intricate complexities, but by exploiting unrecognized simplicity. So we all grab onto this esoteric knowledge as if it contains some sort of key. Um, but really, it's going back to the basics and understanding the basics at a different level that gives us more meaningful, more timeless insight into the problem.
1: Thank you. And do you have a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research?
2: No. Common stuff is all great, but I've kind of gotten away from research a lot in the last decade or so, so I would say pass on that one. All
1: right. And a favorite book?
2: My favorite book, the one that's probably impacted me the most, is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And interestingly enough, the first time I picked it up, I almost like chucked it out a window. I was in university, I think, and I was told to read it, and I just found it impenetrable. And I don't know if it was the translation or what was going on, but then I picked up the Hayes translation, I think it was 20, 25, 26. And I started reading about it and contextualizing it, which is also super important when you're reading. Um, But for me, like it just hit me at the right place, the right time. It's a book that I, gone back too often and sent to people when they're going through something. I send it to friends who work in professional sports and get fired or send it to people struggling with something. And it's not sort of like an advice book. It's more like how to conduct yourself. It's a bit of stoicism in the sense that, you know, you only control some things, you don't control everything and something bad has happened and you need to move on. But it's not done in a way that a book like that would be written today. It's done in a way that like you're reading the leader of the free world effectively at the time who's on the front line with the Gauls. I think, putting his life on the line and the guy can literally do anything he wants with impunity and he's trying to become a better person. And I think that there's something inspiring and there's something that we all see parts of us in that. And we feel like we can handle anything after reading that.
1: Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job?
2: My iPhone, that is my favorite tool. It's the only thing that I I use relentlessly.
1: And are there any noteworthy, I don't know, apps or... Probably
2: not a good example, but...
1: It comes up often. Are there any special apps or or, or things you do with the phone that's super useful and maybe distinctive?
2: Oh, no. It's like all basics for me. It's mostly, uh, I just try to keep things super simple. I use Twitter on my phone. I'm just going through it now. Mealime. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Fortnite is on there so I can play with the kids. But yeah, it's just, it's sort of like the one thing that's I'm thinking about this today. Apple has this really, maybe this is a sidetrack, so cut me off, you don't want to talk about this, but it's not just Apple, it's your phone. Technology is becoming closer to you as a person, right? You put things in your ear, you have your phone in your pocket, and you wear a watch, like it's just, it's so close to you uh, and it's so important. And it's really interesting how people view technology and what shapes them and what they use. Like I use my phone all day to talk on the phone, to interact with people, sometimes to email, I use it for tickets, use it for ordering food, that the variety of sort of like tasks that you can do with it uh, is ever expanding. It's the one thing where I think if I lost it, it would be, it would just instantly need to be replaced.
1: Yeah. And the closest of technology, I mean, the days of chips and things being inserted into us on a wide scale really don't seem that so crazy or far away nowadays as they did a decade ago. Oh, yeah. I mean,
2: it will be so interesting to see what's happening. And I think like the People are starting to try to put standards around this. They'll always be, and not always, but it'll, it'll pay to defect if you are a nation that agrees to this, right? So if you're the sole defector and you can modify your genes or you can do something that gives you an advantage, it's going to be a really interesting sort of game theory. AI is going to be the same way, not only within a country, but sort of like if you look at it as a global ecosystem where, you know, small countries that are reasonably... Um, uncompetitive on a natural resources basis can become super competitive when it comes to computer code, almost asymmetrically. And so if we put standards around like what good and bad AI looks like, those are our standards. Like, is there a worldwide standard? And what if you disagree from that? If you have 99 countries uh, out of 100, so to speak, sign up for climate protection, but one country defects and they defect in a meaningful way and they overcompensate for those other 99. I mean, it doesn't really make a difference. I think it's going to be a really fascinating world to watch this play out. Like, are we going to have sort of wars over this stuff? I don't know. It's going to be interesting.
1: Indeed. And do you have a favorite habit? Sleep. Oh, yeah. So
2: that's the only thing I've sort of like focused on a lot more recently is just trying to get sleep. But uh, really, it's I started turning off my computer at nine at night now, which is super good. And then I do a lot of my reading in the morning
1: instead of at night. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? You get uh, it retweeted or, or repeated back to you frequently? No, I don't think so. Pretty boring guy. i would just say they're all hits. It's, it's hard to single one out is how I would interpret that.
2: I like your generous interpretation much better than mine. Everybody who knows me, would just be like, no, you're pretty boring.
1: If folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Uh, You can go to fs.blog, sign up for a weekly newsletter. It's full of the most interesting things that I read on the internet. You can go to at Farnham Street on Twitter. That's F-A-R-N-A-M Street. And then that's the best way to get in touch. Okay. Reply to any of our emails if you have any questions.
1: Cool. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah, I think the single biggest, two big changes, I'm going to give you two sort of like calls to action. Two big changes make a meaningful impact in whatever you're doing. At every decision meeting, ask yourself, and then what? And the second thing is before every big decision, go for a 15 minute walk, just you just by yourself and just think about that problem. Don't think about how you're going to communicate it. Don't think about anything other than that one problem and try to walk through it. Focus on one thing for 15 minutes. That's a it. an eternity in this age. But work up to 30 minutes. That would be my goal. But just focus on the problem for 15 minutes. Try to think through it from different angles. Think through it from different damage points. What does it look like? What does it look like from everybody else's perspective? What does it look like if I'm an actor in this and I'm watching this play out? And I think that you're going to make dramatically better decisions and the impact of those better decisions, it won't be felt tomorrow. But if you do that for six months, you do it for a year, all of a sudden, you're going to have fewer problems. You're going to have less stress at work. You're going to have better results and you're going to feel better. And that's a deadly combination.
1: Well, Shane, this has been such a treat. Thanks for taking the time and good luck with Farnham Street and all your adventures. Thanks, Pete. I was really struck by Shane's take on how being wrong is labor intensive and it challenges the ego and thinking and dissonance and, and all this hard stuff. And I think that's very true. And that reminded me of a previous conversation we had with uh, Jocelyn Herman-Saccio just about how she doesn't care so much about being right versus wrong so much as just things working. And I thought that's kind of interesting that if that is your Belief, philosophy, mindset, you know orientation, then being wrong may very well possibly be less labor intensive for you if that is your your routine focus and like yep, yeah, yeah, whoops, yep, yeah, I guess I blew it, I flubbed it again. sorry, let's try it this way instead. I think that'd be interesting to go about cultivating that level of humility because not only will you make some better decisions as you're able to more quickly learn from your prior decisions and advance. But you could also invest less energy and be less drained because being wrong is, is so energy depleting. So that's really what Shane got me thinking of from the get-go and how that ties into some of those other perspectives is how much of a fight do you have to put up when you're wrong? And, and to what extent is it possible to develop or to summon the humility, say, whoops, yep, screw that up. Let's do this instead. I think that'll work a lot better. So that's what I've been chewing on after this conversation with Shane, as well as some of those quotations and how I want to build up some more mental models. He had a lot of good stuff here. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F400. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll hear from our next guest. It's Brian Filco. He is talking about how culture is shaped, what it really means, and how it can be tremendously differentiating, even if you sell a commodity like a bundle of cardboard. Peace.